our hosts are what drive our community and our hosts are teachers. Our hosts are firefighters. Our hosts are single mothers. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're helping them make some extra income by hosting their primary homes to keep up with the cost of living. So it's really a mission-driven organization. And, you know, we have great technology. We have some of the best UI in the world. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to our hosts. And they are what are the heart and soul of Airbnb. Welcome to Buildings 2.0, where we dive deep into the technology, trends, and visionaries reshaping the very structures we work in. Here is your host, Jose Cruz Jr., CEO of Integrated Projects. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Buildings 2.0. Today, I'm speaking with Jesse Stein, Global Head of Real Estate at Airbnb. Jesse, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Super excited to dive in. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and uh, what you're doing before your role at Airbnb? Yeah. I mean, if you want to start from the top, what did I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a fighter pilot. Yeah. So I uh, ended up going to the Air Force Academy and thank God for my ability to play football because it's the only reason I got in. But I did the Air Force Academy for a while. I uh, learned I had too many injuries to fly a plane. So I transferred to Florida State and tried to pursue a career in, in football, professional football. So played there for a while, had a cup of coffee with the Jacksonville Jaguars, and then like most, unfortunately got released from the Jaguars and had to find a job and work for a living. And I've always loved the intersection of hospitality and real estate. So I interned in college for a company called Starwood Vacation Ownership. And when I was driving back home from Jacksonville with my trash bag with all my stuff, because I was a rookie free agent punter and we don't really make much money, I stopped by Orlando and my uh, the gentleman that offered me an internship offered me a job. So I said, sure. So I started my career as a financial analyst and Starwood Vacation Ownership did that for a few years. The recession hit. Unfortunately, I lost my job like a lot of folks and kind of had to find my way. So I got into hospitality and worked with Wyndham Hotels for a while. Then I jumped over to a company called Kempton Hotels, ended up leading investments, uh, worked myself out of a job there because we ended up selling the Opco to Intercontinental. I spun off with a group of folks to raise another private equity fund, led investments there for a while. And then Airbnb called and I was uh, inspired by the opportunity and you know the rocket ship that was Airbnb. And I decided to join the team and kind of spin up a new real estate group at Airbnb. You know, on so many levels, I think uh, curious to hear just what that transition was like going from you know private equity to Airbnb. I suspect from an operations perspective, just high growth perspective, just how to run a company perspective. Curious what what was maybe some of the shocking kind of like cultural impacts. When you're a smaller private equity company, we had, you know, we weren't Blackstone. We weren't Starwood Capital. We weren't Brookfield. We were a small niche group and we were really focused on single asset transactions. And so I was flying around from market to market, really diving into the minute details of every transaction and the opportunity there. And it was really 100% focused on the numbers. At the end of the day, everything was the numbers. And I'm not saying that it's not part of the culture at Airbnb. It's definitely part of the culture. We're really focused on numbers and data. But with that being said, running a real estate group at Airbnb, I have software engineers reporting to me. I have marketing experts reporting to me. I have policy experts reporting to me. I'm doing a lot of comms work with our comms team. So it was a big transition 
in the fact that I was so maniacally focused on the data and numbers at my private equity role to here, I am more focused on leading a team. And my day-to-day is so much different at Airbnb than it was in the private equity world as a leader of a group versus a leader of a small little investment group where I was buying, selling, developing, so on and so forth. So it's been a real blast. I'll be honest. It's been a blessing, a personal blessing and a professional blessing to be here. And I have the great privilege of uh, reporting to one of the founders of Airbnb, and he's one of the most humble individuals I've ever met in my life, and obviously one of the smartest individuals I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Well, I can share from an outsider's perspective, my team would agree. I have a bit of a company crush on Airbnb and how you guys have just approached almost everything, right? From comms and not lost on us how difficult it is from managing guests to hosts and, you know, two sides of the marketplace and, and efforts just to. I guess at the end of the day, just build an incredible experience. I resonate, you know, dearly with, you know, some of the founders perspective on kind of design led thinking. It's just really refreshing. So you guys are doing something right. And when you think about the core of Airbnb, it's really helping people monetize their homes and utilize their existing real estate better to make some incremental income. So it's really a mission driven company as well, because, you know, unlike the hotel space where we're owned by private equity, large LPs, our hosts are what drive our community and our hosts are teachers. Our hosts are firefighters. Our hosts are single mothers. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're helping them make some extra income by hosting their primary homes to keep up with the cost of living. So it's really a mission driven organization. And, you know, we have great technology. We have some of the best UI in the world, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to our hosts and they are what are the heart and soul of Airbnb. Yeah. And, you know, I uh, just say I didn't share this with you ahead of time, but um, I'm one of those Airbnb hosts. You know, I'll, I'll share a little bit of personal background and why it, I think, personally resonates is um, when I started Integrated Projects about five years ago, actually, so I bootstrapped the company for some time. And uh, it turns out when you're a bootstrap founder, you try to do anything for the company to de-risk as much as possible. So I'll never forget, I think it was around year two or three of the business where I was finally able to kind of pay myself something. And um, I used, you know, the monies I paid myself from the end of that year to put a down payment on a um, on a three unit property in, in New Jersey. And the thinking went, if I can afford to not pay myself right from the startup to kind of de-risk it and, and instead try to, you know, kind of rent out my primary home, that it would just kind of help me de-risk the business, right? And so that's exactly how it played out. And for me, it's been transformational. And all along the way, I've seen kind of like how Airbnb's transformed its experience for hosts and obviously for guests. And so I can't help but to be a little bit of a of a fanboy. But I guess on your end, so now you, you've been tasked with how do we expand and partner with multi-family kind of landlords? Is that a fair kind of, that's the effort at that end? Yeah, I think your story is a beautiful one. I think one of the opportunities you have that a lot of folks didn't have is you owned you own that unit and you were able to host it. But when you take a step back and you look at the housing stock in the US, 35% of the overall housing stock in the US are rentals. So renters historically have not been able to host like those that own their homes. And that's been a philosophical challenge for Airbnb, but also for the consumers in those rentals, because those individuals haven't been able to monetize their primary home to save for you know, a down payment or potentially pay their rent or 
honestly, buy groceries, whatever it may be, depending on your lifestyle. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is empower renters to monetize the benefits of Airbnb like those that own homes. And when you look at who owns the housing stock and the rentals, you know, it's somewhat concentrated to a lot of these larger players. So we're starting with them, but then you kind of go down the funnel and you own a three unit complex in New Jersey. So you are one of those landlords, if you will. And eventually we hope that your renters have the ability to host their home part-time that you would if you owned that unit. So we've launched Airbnb Friendly Apartments, which is really a partnership with the largest landlords in the country. We started with groups like Equity Residential, Gray Star, Brookfield, Starwood Capital, so on and so forth. We launched 175 buildings across the US and roughly 25 cities. So consumers can now go to Airbnb, find communities across the US that allow them to host, get in contact with those buildings, move in, and if they so choose, host their primary home part-time. We've been very blessed and we've scaled to over 260 properties across the US with another 100 or so in the backlog that we're going to be onboarding soon. And it's been really a great opportunity for the landlords, but also more so for the residents in those communities that want the ability to host uh, part-time. That's so exciting. Curious, you know, put us in the mindset of a landlord. What are some of the common objections that they they'll typically say? And then I guess you got to kind of have to get their blessing right before you then yeah. equip the tenants. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, change is always hard, right? And when you look at that 35% of the housing stock, taking a step back, there's not enough housing in general. So rentals are primarily full. You look at you know, the data, 95 to 97% full, depending on is it multifamily, single family rentals, whatever it may be. So when you put yourselves in the shoes of the landlord, the question is like, why? Why would I do this? I'm already full. You know, rents are, rents are healthy, if you will. But why would I do this? So there's really three core benefits to the landlord. One, we are marketing their properties to our consumers for free. So there's not like an expense to get lead generation from Airbnb. We are very blessed with the amount of consumers we have. We've built, I mean, Airbnb is a noun and a verb. There's an SNL skit about Airbnb. Like, you know, it's craziness. Like we are very fortunate with the number of eyeballs. So we are now coaching those eyeballs to be able to find their next 12 month rental on Airbnb. And we are sending those consumers to our partners for free. So we are helping the top of the funnel, number one. Number two, we've built all the software and the tech on the back end to ensure the fabric of the community stays residential. So when a consumer hosts in your building, he or she is hosting part-time. So 40 to 60 nights a year, maybe 90 nights, potentially 120, depending on their lifestyle. Like we have hosts that literally host 10 nights a year. We have hosts that host 120 nights a year. Obviously the host that hosts 120 nights a year, his name's Marco as an example, he is a sales consultant. He's traveling every week. Other hosts might only host when they take their family on vacation to Disney and they pay for that vacation by hosting. So the tools really help ensure that the individuals that are hosting live there. First and foremost, they live there. It's their primary home and they're hosting part-time. The third opportunity is when they host, our partners are able to take a percentage of the revenue and that flows partially to the bottom line. So there's a rev share component for the landlords as well. So they get free demand, they get visibility and control, and they get part of the upside. And part of the upside is determined by the partner 
and how many serve how much services they're providing to the residents. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thought of or you you guys are at around a hundred thousand plus units today. In total, across all of our buildings, yes, there's roughly a hundred thousand plus units. That doesn't mean there's a hundred thousand hosts. There's a hundred thousand units in the buildings, and those residents have the ability to host if they so choose. Right, right, right. I mean, but even scaling to that end so quickly is pretty remarkable. I mean, and yet on the other end, I heard you before say something like the you know multifamily market, something like forty-five million units of, of some sort. So there's a long ways to go. You know what needs to be true in order to to go even faster. I suspect the answer is some combination of things, but what are some of the ways to kind of make this more tenable to first owners and, and tenants? Well, what's what's really interesting, and you know, if you look at our existing partners I mentioned that we launched with the equity residentials, the gray stars, so on, every single one that launched launched with a handful of properties. Everyone's scared of change. Everyone's scared of the boogeyman in the closet, if you will. And once they get comfortable that the tools work and the fabric of the community stays residential, thank God, knock on wood, they've all expanded if they've had the ability to. So we've penetrated our existing partner's portfolio in a more robust way since launch. And then getting each new partner to get comfortable with it takes time because everybody is somewhat concerned about whatever it may be, a flood in the building or you know, a party or whatever it may be. But we've built all the tools to minimize the impacts. So I think it's more education to the real estate community that this is not taking away 20 units of your 100 unit apartment complex and running a hotel. That is not what this is. This is giving your residents the ability to host part-time. And so it's really just getting the word out, educating more and having kind of the real estate industry talk to each other because I can say whatever I want to say. But if you know UDR, who's one of our partners, preaches that whatever Jesse is saying is true, that actually has more of an impact. So it's going to take time. There's a lot of variables. And you know, the 45 million you you mentioned is equivalent to 35% of the US housing stock. So yeah, there's 45 million rentals across the US. And there's a variety of roadblocks in the way, like local laws. You're in New York. Like, unfortunately, renters in New York today, given their new law, can't do this. But in San Francisco, it's clear. Residents are allowed to host 90 days a year. So wherever there's regulation, which is over 80% of the markets, we're happy with most of it. New York's the outlier. So that's another roadblock. And then there's other things as well, like we have to educate the lending community that, you know, your collateral is still a 12-month lease. It's not a hotel. And so it's just an education process and it's, it's going to take time, but we're very, very grateful for our growth so far. But honestly, it's the tip of the iceberg and a hundred thousand units divided by 45 million is basically a rounding error to zero. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I can speak for New York and I suspect in other major urban markets, this topic is, is coming up. Uh, we ourselves serviced recently a commercial office turned residential project. You see this a lot in New York City where, you know, you could be walking around in town Manhattan at 4 or 5 p.m., look up and there's a lot of empty space. And yet, on the other hand, you know, you've got skyrocketing um, kind of housing expenses to your point earlier, but we just simply don't have enough housing. I'm curious your take on, do you see this kind of office to resi transition as an opportunity to kind of proactively go to landlords and be like, hey, there's just a different way to think about housing? You know, as folks are starting to think about, well, what do I do with these empty office floor plates? 
we're certainly starting to see this in New York. I suspect San Francisco is probably asking similar questions, but what do you see on your end? You know, I'll take it back to my previous life at Kimpton Hotels. We did a lot of adaptive reuse of old office buildings. And for every thousand office buildings I looked at, maybe one or two made sense, just given the floor plates and you may need to do a light well, or, you know, the risers didn't make sense. So it all comes down to economics and, you know, what can you do with the existing floor plates? How much is it going to cost you to do that versus lease the office building for half price? Like, where is that point of diminishing returns? So there are diamonds in the rough, if you will, but I don't see the office conversion as the savior to the housing crisis. I think it will help, obviously, any incremental housing we can add is beneficial, but I don't think it's the savior just because you know the economics don't work as well unless you're getting these huge historical tax credit subsidies, which we really focused on at Kempton. Um, so it's I'd like to see more, but unfortunately, having looked at a thousand of these buildings, I've done the numbers and until the basis comes down to such a point where it's so low, you know, the economics will continue to be challenging unless there's incremental subsidies that help the private markets make these pencil. Yeah. Yeah. I guess just evolving the the conversation into technology, I'm curious as you're sourcing opportunities with landlords across the country, are there any emerging technologies that you're paying attention to that you've seen helps folks better source, better visualize, better, you know, maybe just identify opportunities? Or is there anything you're paying attention to in particular? A lot of the technology that people may say are emerging, I would say are table stakes now. Like for example, like let's take the simplicity of a smart lock. Like a smart lock is such an amazing technology that we are integrating with. And that just makes the community or the lifestyle better for everybody. Cause I don't know, I forget my keys all the time. So I, I've, I've installed a smart lock. So things like that, there's obviously various building systems that have been integrated from an environmental perspective. They're very, very beneficial. And you know, the evolution of, I would say, property management software is starting to happen as well. And just to a certain degree, how do you integrate you know, Airbnb into your existing property management system? And we're working on all those fun things. But I do feel like there's a lot of prop tech out there. And I always wonder about like, what is this prop tech solving? Like what you guys are doing is really, really intriguing. And I've used it personally. And it's like helping solve visualizing you know, the space you either own or are looking to own. And that's like a missing piece. So I love that model. There's other things that I'm like scratching my head. It's like, who, what is the problem this technology is solving? So I keep a pulse on it. But what I'm really more focused on, to be honest, is how do we integrate Airbnb into multifamily residential in the right way? What are the tools we need to build to integrate that? to give people the flexibility they're looking for today to earn some extra income. So I'm more focused on those aspects and things like smart locks, things potentially like noise monitoring, things like that could make sense. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've always said with real estate, there's something like beautifully unsexy about it that like, doesn't matter how good your software is. If like, if you can't get into the door, uh, <laughs> there's like something, you know, beautifully human about it. And, and I can relate in many ways at the end of the day, you can build incredible software. In fact, I'd argue perhaps like the first and second wave of prop tech did an incredible job of, you know, digitizing images, 
text and maybe floor plans. I do suspect that this kind of next wave of, of companies and particularly in prop tech has to come to grips with the fact that in this, at least in this particular industry, you know, you're dealing with brick and mortar and things that, you know, break and, and, and move. And so there has to be this kind of understanding that, you know, software is table stakes, but there's something a little bit more, right? Like someone's got to be there. Well, yeah, you got you got to be there. And then also just like rolling out that software or hardware takes time. It's not, you know, the great thing about software is you can iterate, you can ship products really quickly. But when you're trying to install those products in a hundred thousand units, like that's not like pressing a button. That's bricks and mortar. It's labor. It's the hardworking people that are actually working on site at these properties that are dealing with this. And you have to keep them in mind and that they're your first customer, like those individuals, like how do you, whatever you build, make sure you can use it for those individuals, whoever that individual may be your use case. Ours is like the on-site property management team. Like, you know, everybody's concerned that, you know, Airbnb is going to bring in more traffic and it's going to, you know, have more people through the door and what, what should we do? So on and so forth. So everything we build is really for those individuals. Obviously you have the reporting upstream, but it's got to be so simple to use. I mean, one of the slogans I use is like, if you're drafting me a memo for my team, draft it to me like I'm a third grader. Cause like, I, I don't understand anything about software. I'm starting to learn, but if you simplify it, it can get rolled out so much easier. Kind of keeping that, that end user in mind. I, I know exactly what you mean there. If we're not careful, we can kind of get in this motion of building technology for its own sake. And sometimes maybe losing sight that someone at the end of it's got to use it without having a PhD in, you know, software. And a Apple's done such a good job with that. I mean, I, I mean, they've done too good a job of that because my like eight year old kid is on our iPad all the time. Like I, I love Apple and I hate Apple, but it's, it's <laughs> such a phenomenal job with making the user interface so, so seamless. And, yeah. you know, we, we are blessed with that too at Airbnb. Yeah. I guess on that note, so you've walked me through the, you know, the importance of, um, just like fundamentally different experience, the importance of technology. How do both tenants and landlords understand the changing unit economics? I love the example you posed of, you know, someone renting out their home because they went on a family vacation. Like they, by doing that, they were able to kind of pay that off. How do you approach the, like the, the changing unit economics of, of being able to kind of rent out your own apartment or for landlords, you know, the impacts of their tenants having the flexibility to do this? Yeah. So let's focus on the tenant side. So on Airbnb friendly apartments, we've integrated with all the property management systems. So we have real time data into what your unfurnished rent costs on a monthly basis. And we at Airbnb have so much data on what historical ADRs, average daily rates have been for a short term basis. So on Airbnb friendly, we built a custom calculator that kind of outlines what your unfurnished rent would be. And then below it, it gives you the option. Do you want to host one night? Do you want to host two nights, three nights, so on and so forth. And it can kind of show you what the ADR has been over the last 12 months. Now, obviously that is an average ADR and ADRs, average daily rates change daily. So if you host during compression periods, let's take my example of Gina in San Diego. She only hosts during compression periods in San Diego and a compression period in San Diego is like Comic-Con, right? So that's not really an average daily rate because that's the point. If she would to host on a random Sunday night, obviously the rate would be different. So 
historical ADRs aren't indicative of future ADRs, but it gives you kind of a, a snapshot in history. And it kind of shows you if you host five nights, seven nights, you can you know, basically cover half your rent or whatever the numbers may be for the market you're in. And it's very, very, I hope it's very easy to use. We've done a bunch of research and uh, I'm a big fan of focus groups and the focus groups seem like it's easy to use and understand. So that that's really from the tenant side. On the landlord side, they can use the same calculator, right? And they can look at it and say, if, if 5% of my renters host and they host 30 nights a year or 40 nights a year, and my rev share is 10, 15, 20%, they can all put that in their little Excel model and run it through to understand what they think their impact may be. And then obviously, once we have partners, we have reporting on a monthly basis. I have an entire account management team that works with our partners to help ensure the program is run successfully. And we do monthly, if not weekly calls to go through the pros and cons, what we need to improve, where where we're excelling, so on and so forth. And it's a full dashboard we built for our partners where they can see every night, every dollar, so on and so forth. I'm curious now, I guess at a personal level, with so many factors that you're grappling with from the unit economics or customer facing side, from regulations, from just emerging technology. I mean, forget where we are today, like just kind of where it's all going. What's your day-to-day look like? You know, how do you manage like software teams, product teams, customers? I, I'm taking notes. So any advice you got there? Well, let's start with today. So today <laughs> I drove my mother-in-law to the airport at 5.15 in the morning. And so that was two hours of my day. I did a, <laughs> I did a call on the way home. Uh, my head of uh, sales is based on the East Coast. So I, I called him around 6.30 in the morning. He was like, what are you doing? I'm like calling you. And then I had a couple of policy calls this morning, um, doing some press interview with you. I had a call with a potential candidate for a BD role. I think the common theme is no day is the same. Every day is different. Every day is a new challenge, but I don't like to look at challenges. I like to look at opportunities. And you know, once a week I have to I have to talk to a host because like I, I bang my head against the wall 7,000 times in a week. And you know, what keeps me going is, is the story of Gina. She literally paid off her student loans and started, you know, started her own uh, fitness business because she was able to host. So it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. I never thought I'd be spending 15 to 20% of my time on various policy things from local regulations to federal mandates, if you will. But it's what makes it interesting. It's what I love. And I really, I really enjoy working with the team that I'm working with. And I've got a tremendous amount of respect for our partners and our hosts. I mean, I'm a host personally as well. And it really, it's scary at first letting somebody sleep in your home, but then you get comfortable. You realize you can make some money and meet some new people and it's great, but Every day is crazy. I, I love it. <laughs> yes, I, I imagine so many things coming at you. I, I'm curious, are there any parallels from your football days to to now? Yes. I think what, what the football days taught me is, you know, I had the privilege of playing at Florida State for a couple of years and there's 100,000 people in the stands every weekend, national TV, and it's like dealing with pressure and dealing with challenges and you know, I love the baseball analogy. If you get on base three times out of 10, you're in the Hall of Fame in baseball. So if you bat 300, you're in the Hall of Fame in baseball. So it's it's really taught me the pressure side and the stress side and just coping with that. And 
you know, some of the best money I spent in college was working with a sports psychologist to get me comfortable in those positions and, you know, being thrown into the fire, whatever it may be from marketing, from policy, from legal, whatever it is, just brush it all off, you know, wake up the next morning, pack your lunch, go to work and, you know, bring a smile. So, yeah. you know, you should just be grateful for the opportunity. And I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been so refreshing to, to hear and kind of reminder that, uh, you know, we're all, we're all just trying to figure it out. Right. So I think, um, I really appreciate your time. You've been extremely generous. It's not lost to me. You've been up since five, uh, uh, 445. My mother-in-law was waiting for me at 515 and she was yelling at me because worry about the traffic in the Bay area, which God bless her. I understand. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's got a point there. So, so it's not lost to me. You, you've likely got a, a bunch of other, uh, backs to back. So we'll, we'll Certainly a, a part two, but before we wrap, is there ways folks could can follow your work uh, in meaningful ways? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you just Google Airbnb friendly apartments, you'll find us. There's a way to get in contact with us at the bottom. If you're a partner, uh, if you want, if you onboard your property, there's a you know contact form on the bottom of Airbnb friendly. And if you're a consumer, I would say give it a shot. You know, maybe you don't host, maybe you do host, but why not live in a building that gives you that opportunity? So try it out. Love it. Love it. Amazing. Really fun conversation. Uh, thanks again for having us. So, um, yeah, we're gonna have to do a part two. All right. Sounds good. Thank you.